0: If you missed it, there should have been outlines on the back Uh, seat back there if you want to follow along. And otherwise, uh, you can turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. We're in a verse-by-verse look at this. Uh, Part of the reason we look to 1 Thessalonians this semester is our theme as a church uh, has been this year to excel still more, particularly in caring for one another. And uh, the phrase, excel still more, comes from... This book. And so we've looked to it for guidance and direction as we have uh, sought to be faithful and to grow in our ability to minister to one another and uh, to be equipped to share the gospel in our community and beyond. So uh, we're going to come back. We'll review a little bit. We find ourselves today in the end of uh, chapter two, well, re- really into chapter three now, and then we'll get into new material in chapter four. But just by way of review, um, Let's look at where we've been, and sorry, that's kind of small there, but uh, Paul has been writing to the Thessalonians, and um, right out of the gate, he's very thankful. The Thessalonians, uh, remember, this, this is one of the earliest New Testament letters written. The church is brand new. They don't have a New Testament written yet. They don't have any formal guidance. All they have is the teachings of the apostles, and you'll remember the apostle Paul founded this church, and then due to persecution, he had to leave. So he is residing in a different town as he writes this. And uh, he was so concerned for the well-being of the Thessalonians with the persecution happening in the the first century in the early church. you you remember what he does? Uh, Do you remember the occasion of this? What does he do uh, because he's caring for the Thessalonians? He wants to check on them. Okay, that was the part where you're supposed to talk. So um, you you think about what did he do because he was caring for the people. What did he do? He sends Timothy back, right? Timothy goes back to Thessalonica, checks it out, and Timothy comes back and gives a glowing report that the Thessalonians are doing well. And Paul is so encouraged by that, he picks up his pen and he writes the letter we know as First Thessalonians to encourage them and uh, to just express his thankfulness. And as we've seen in our kind of our, our series message, to excel still more in those things. Uh, and he's run the gamut. Uh, he's talked about their exemplary work. Um, he's talked about uh, how the apostles, in verse in chapter two, we talked about how uh, the apostles, when they came in, were, were very uh, cognizant to not be a burden to the Thessalonians, but to work for their welfare. And, and I love that phrase that um, they, they they came not just not just bringing them the gospel, but their very lives. Do you remember that? And that, that's that's gospel ministry. We're not just investing in sharing a message with somebody; we're investing in sharing a life with someone and those are good reminders. And then really if you look at the review on your notes there this is where we've been we've seen we're calling it three characteristics of exemplary faith as we get into the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3 we've seen first of all that the Thessalonians received the word not as the word of man but as the word of God and that, that that's a mark a mark of spiritual health isn't it? When we take the things of God, whether it's Pastor Terry preaching or Pastor Brian Nystrom in New Mexico, or whether you're listening to some podcast or some Christian book that's expositing the Word of God or a blog, that, that we, we would respond to the Word, not as the Word of men, but as the Word of God. And we talked a couple of weeks ago, we are so blessed, aren't we? We are so blessed. We have Bibles coming out our ears. We have technology bringing good exposition to us like no other generation the, of christians have known and it's so easy isn't it to, to just get casual and, and and to forget we're hearing the living word of the living god and, and there ought to be a, a a heart posture and a response to that an attention to that as we hear god's word and, and seek to respond in faith to it so paul says to the thessalonians i'm so thankful that when we brought the message to you of god's word that you responded in that way The second characteristic we saw is that they are suffering well for the sake of the gospel. At the end of chapter 2 there, he writes for you, this is chapter 2, verse 14, you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So that same persecution that happened in Jerusalem, uh, you remember James talks about that, right? Those early Jewish Christians had to leave Jerusalem and they were scattered. Uh, so now that persecution is is spreading out into other parts of the world, like in Thessalonica. And, and Paul says, I'm so encouraged that you're standing firm in that persecution. You're suffering well. And um, that's a phrase we don't like to talk about, is it? We're, we're suffering well. And yet we see Peter talks about this, James talks about it. That the way that we suffer because of the gospel is an apologetic for it, isn't it? That we we magnify Christ and we broadcast the glory of our Savior by suffering in a way that pleases God. And again, you know, in the Americas, we don't know suffering like most of church history has known. And so we're thankful for that. Uh, but we, we never want to forget that, that how we suffer, how we deal with... Maybe it's, maybe it's not suffering. Maybe it's traffic. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis. Maybe it's um, it's not like, you know, hard-nosed persecution, that, that how we respond to the afflictions of life are gospel issues in in terms of what we're saying to people around us about our faith and about our God. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, you're doing a great job there. And then the last thing we looked at, this was just a couple of weeks ago, Um, I love this, a third characteristic of exemplary faith, deep relationships committed to spiritual welfare. And we won't read the section, but if you look at chapter 3, the whole chapter is is really holding up this idea of what does spiritual health look like in the body of Christ. What, What do relationships deeply committed to the gospel and to one another, partnering together in the context of a local church, what does that look like? And again, we, we see some descriptions of that here, right? We, we see just the idea of we love to be together. That's verses uh, 17 and 18 there at the end of chapter 2, right? They, they love to see one another. Counting relationships with other believers as our great joy, um, again we we were talking about like noel said it right you know live streams great but it's not like it's not the same as being together that's what that's what paul's telling the thessalonians not, not they didn't have live stream back then but he's just saying uh, longing to be together we can write letters and that's great but but we long to be together because we're united together in christ and uh, and that's a challenge isn't it um you know as we think about our own community we think do we do we find being with one another as our great joy that's paul's language there um, that that's That's a mark of spiritual health, isn't it? How about this? Verses uh, 1 to 5 and getting into chapter 3, sacrificing for the benefit and encouragement of others. That's what we do, right? We we lay down our lives. We pour out our life to better the uh, spiritual growth of one another and especially as we go out of these walls to um, share the gospel with other people. We rejoice in the well-being of other believers. Uh, I love this, chapter 3, verse 6. He says, but now that Timothy has come to you, so Timothy's gone, he's come back, and he's brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. He says, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through our faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Think of what he's saying. He's saying, we we are exuberant knowing that you're doing well spiritually. That's the level of commitment uh, that we see in the body of Christ. And then finally, persistent prayer for opportunities in terms of sharing the gospel. We looked at that last time. Look at the the sort of doxological prayer at the end of chapter 3. He gives us an example, really, of the type of prayer he's talking about. Verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What's neat about that prayer is he takes everything he was just talking about And then he says, you know what, we need to be praying for each other. And then he models that prayer for them. He models how to pray, bringing all of those ideas together for their spiritual health and longing to be together and abounding in in love for one another um, in that prayer there as he concludes. Okay, so that's kind of where we've been. Uh, Let's look now at this next section in chapter 4. And uh, this is interesting. We're going to call this Living to Please God, and, and you'll see that. As we, let me read the section for you and then we'll, we'll kind of take it apart together. So, chapter four, verse one, there's a transitional phrase here. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort from you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. There's our phrase. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. And so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you." Um, it is not a shock if I were to say to you that we live in the most sexualized culture that American history has ever seen. And um, Paul's challenge here is particularly relevant, I think, uh, for the church in our generation today because sexual purity is... Uh, so challenged on any number of fronts today. Our, our young people, especially um, internet access, um, entertainment. Uh, we, we just see this all over. And yet what Paul's going to say is when we think about what it means to be holy, uh, to be growing in Christ's likeness uh, you, you do, do this study, look look at Paul's letters, anywhere he gives a list of, when he says, okay, Christian, here's what you need to work on. The top item on almost every one of those lists is what? Sexual purity. Uh, now, part of that could be he's writing to a very perverse uh, Greco-Roman culture, a lot of those letters where sexuality was just way out of control and it was part of the pagan religion of the day. And, and so we understand that. Uh, but I think as well he's saying as we come to Christ, one of the first areas we want to focus on in terms of a walk with God is walking in holiness and turning away from sexual sin and learning to walk in sexual purity. So we'll, we'll see that as we uh, we get into this. Um, you know, in, in, uh, in counseling uh, with um, people we see here in our community counseling ministry, uh, we see it with, um, Terry and I both have the privilege of getting to supervise new counselors. Um, I work with uh, students in a graduate program in biblical counseling. And I'll tell you, the, e- easily, the, the, the top item men are facing is sexual purity. Easily the top item. And as I talk to some of our female counselors and some of my female counseling students, um, it's it's crazy because... Um, the, the, the statistics on women viewing pornography today are higher than they've ever been. I mean, there, there was a generation not too long ago when that was mostly a guy's thing. Well, guess what? It's not a guy's thing anymore. It's, it's a human being problem. And, uh, and so th- this is so important. First, guys, that, that we would have hearts that are growing in purity and we would be putting to death those temptations and those sins in our own hearts uh, but then, that as, we, as we find grace in Christ to walk in purity and holiness ourselves, that then we're, we're coming alongside broken marriages and, and uh, college students and, and, you know, old people, old people that are struggling with sexual sin uh, in, in the, the later years of life. And um, this is part of our calling, guys, is, is to go into the world and help. Uh, people to see the gospel of Christ to rescue them out of the bondage. Uh, I mean, it's called an addiction today. You know, the the, the addiction of sexual sin. Um, so let's let's look at this text and and let's be encouraged and and uh, taught as we learn how we could do this. Okay, look back to chapter four, verse one. And uh, the first thing here is he just says, uh, we want to encourage others to excel more in walking to please God. Look look with me at chapter. 4 verse 1 again. He says, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. What's the main thing he's saying there? He's saying you're doing good at this, but what were the Thessalonians doing that he says, this is great, this is what you should do, keep at it. What's the command there? What do you see? What's that? They're encouraged to excel more. That's absolutely right. But in in what area specifically? Yeah, yeah. Do you see that? He says, we we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus uh, that you ought to walk and please God. And this is important. This is language that we have to be really careful with. The believer's life ought to be one of striving to please God. That's biblical language. Sometimes we get nervous because sometimes we hear, please God, and if we're not careful about defining that or pursuing that, we hear some form of legalism, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good things, and God's going to accept me. Or I'm going to do good things, and God's going to love me more. And, and let's just be clear, that's not what this means. Paul has laid a very foundation in these chapters, reminding us that, that the only way that fallen, sinful people can be reconciled to God and become a part of his family is through the person and work of Jesus alone, accessed by faith alone, right? We just had Reformation Day. We just reviewed this, right? So we understand that. So when Paul or other biblical writers talk about living to please God or living um, to honor God, we, we, we we have to listen to that through gospel ears. Does that make sense? So imagine this. You've got you've got a family, and um, and there's a, a dad, and um, this dad is a tyrant, and uh, he is abusive in his language. He is cold and distant with his children. Uh, he is off doing his own thing when he's around. He's gruff. He's rough. He he barks out orders to his family. Everyone walks on eggshells, right? You got the idea. Now imagine that dad has a five-year-old. And when he thinks about his dad, what's he thinking? He's thinking, I don't want to mess up. Because I don't want dad to blow up. I don't want to make him angry. And so he's thinking about pleasing his dad through the lens of earning peace, earning friendship, earning love, earning just Stability in the home, right? That's what that little five-year-old is thinking, okay? Now contrast that with another family, another dad. And this dad is a servant in his home. And he is kind and gracious in his words. Uh, he loves his family. He's with his kids. Um, they enjoy wonderful time together. You know, he, he disciplines in love when he needs to. He's not a pushover. Uh, but, but from the heart, this is a man that is loving and caring for his children. And um, so imagine that dad has a five-year-old. And that, that five-year-old is secure in the love of his father, isn't he? And when that five-year-old thinks, pleasing my dad, that's very different than the other five-year-old, isn't it? The other one, it's how do I keep the peace? How do I earn love? How do I make him happy? How do I you know, pacify? Whereas this this dad, this five-year-old is thinking, I want to obey my dad because I love him. Because I'm so thankful that he's my dad. And, and I, want, I want to honor my dad. You see the difference? And, and, and gospel-centered, pleasing God is not like that first example. We're trying to earn something. Trying to pacify God. It's like that second example. It's because we love God. It's because we're secure in His family. It's because our greatest, our greatest aspiration is to honor God for who He is and what He's done in our life. Okay? So we have to read, uh, passages like this, making sure we got the right framework. Okay? So we don't end up doing something that we ought not to do and trying to please God in some legalistic way. Okay, so with that clarification, come back to the text. Paul is saying here what we, what you should do. He's requesting of them, right? Is that we would encourage one another. He uses two words there: request and exhort. Exhort can be encourage; it can have a little more force to it. But but the point is, we're, we're nudging each other on. We're spurring each other on to excel in this idea of walking in a way that pleases. God. that That's that's the banner over what we're trying to do as believers. Uh, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do what? Do all to the glory of God, right? Remember, Paul writes to the to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians that Jesus died so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves, but for but for Him, right? That that's part of what God's doing in the gospel is He's rescuing us from the bondage of living for me and he's putting on us on a new road of living for him again secure in the relationship in the gospel but aiming to honor and please him. So what does this mean? I think this is a great challenge. I'm just to pull the car over for a minute and just say is this what we do? As a church family, how consistent? How faithful? How mindful are of we that that we would view our relationships with one another with this opportunity to encourage each other to be living in a way that pleases God, right? And we, we, we have a great time, don't we? I mean, we, we we laugh together. We, we watch football games together. We do home groups, all this sort of, we minister together and all that's good. But at the core of that ought to be a, a regular, like the constant conversation, right? We, we would want a visitor in our church who eavesdrop on a conversation at Grace Bible Church, we would want them to hear encouragements to live in a way that pleases God. That ought to be the atmosphere of our conversation, uh, the regular themes of what we're trying to do. And of course, Paul says, you're doing great, right? And we can say, Grace Bible Church, you're doing great. Let's excel still more even in how we do that. Now, secondly, look at this. Secondly, we need to remember Jesus Christ is both the authority calling us to obey and the means by which we can obey. This is interesting. This goes back to Paul's own clarification of what he means when he says uh, walk to please God. Look, look what he says here. He says, uh, you received from us instruction as to how uh, how you ought to walk and please God. Right? Where does that come from? He says, we request and exhort you in what? in the Lord. So Paul, what Paul's saying is, we're going to tell you, Thessalonians, that you need to excel still more in walking to please God. But really, where's that command ultimately coming from? From Jesus himself, isn't it? Paul's just the waiter. He's just delivering the message of the gospel. And so Paul says, it's Jesus, the Lord Jesus, um, whom we've received this right instruction on how you ought to walk and that you ought to please God. And notice verse two, he says, for, you know, what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So again, what is he saying? He's saying we ought to excel still more in seeking to please God, to live in a way that pleases God. Why? Because Jesus has called us to that. Right, he has authority to command us as Lord, as our Savior, to do that. That's what he's doing, and yet it's in the Lord Jesus that we have the the abilities to do that, the means to do that. And again, I think that's helpful because when we're encouraging one another, if if you go to your friend and you say, "Hey, I was thinking maybe this area of your life was something to keep an eye on," you know, maybe you've observed something and this is a good friend of yours, and, and you're seeing something that isn't quite aligning with Scripture. That, that when we do that for one another, the one giving that exhortation can be confident that insofar as we're bringing God's Word, it's Jesus' authority ultimately behind that encouragement, isn't it? And if you're receiving that, if you have a friend that loves you enough to pull you aside and say, hey, I love you, this area over here just it just isn't aligning With Scripture, it's not Christ-like in some way. When we receive that, what are are we all tempted to do? Well, I'll just say, I'm tempted to do. When that happens, what am I tempted to do? I get defensive and upset at the person bringing the message, right? And what Paul's saying is, remember, it's Jesus' authority that's actually communicating that. Your, Your friend is just the messenger. And so that that can help us to remember how to receive these sorts of exhortations and encouragements because Jesus is the authority and he's the means by which we can obey. All right, let's look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Um, How many of you have taken classes on how to know and do the will of God? Read books on how to know and do the will of God? Okay, I've I've taught classes on this. I've read books. And um, this is shocking, especially if you're a new Christian. Because you think, okay, I'm a a new believer, and uh, God's got this plan for my life. And, um, okay, and and, and I think a lot of Christians think, okay, Bible's sufficient, so uh, there's got to be some passage in here about what job I'm supposed to get, and who I'm supposed to marry, and what house I'm supposed to buy, and right? I remember as a new Christian going, okay, Bible's sufficient. There's a whole lot of stuff missing, I think. And part of, part of the wisdom of God in knowing and doing his will is to first reorient how we even think about that question. Because often we think about the will of God as a to-do list. And there are things in the Bible that would look like a to-do list. But, but if we boil it down and say, what is the will of God for my life? It's not a job. It's not a person. It's not a location where I'm supposed to live. Um, it's a way of living. It's a way of living. So, so if, if you're wondering what the will of God is in your life, I've got good news for you. I'm going to tell you right now what it is. You ready? And actually, I'm not going to tell you. God's going to tell you through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Verse 3, uh, this is the will of God. You ready? What is it? Isn't that isn't that geniusly simple? It's the gospel, yeah. <laughs> Surprise! God's will is that we would be more like Him every day. So don't don't trip over that word sanctification. That's our word that gets translated holiness. It gets translated sanctification. We could I gave you some glosses there. It's our spiritual growth, it's purity, it's Christ likeness. That regardless of what job you have or who you marry or what house you buy or you know what car you drive or right? Be like Christ. Grow to be more like Christ. That God's will is first first and foremost our sanctification. Doesn't that, doesn't that Help a lot of things. Um how many have a decision that you're thinking about? You don't tell us what it is, but you have some sort of decision just kind of rolling around your head. Okay, a few of you. Um how many of you have made decisions before? Okay, good. All right, got we got you there. I was worried. Yeah. And, and and do you do what what I do? It's like, okay, I got this decision to make. Okay. Pros, cons. Um, you know, and you might get some advice and and all that. And and what, what I think what Scripture is saying is there's a time for advice, there's a time for making lists and all that. But but what what ought to be the first priority when we have a decision to make? Yeah, to glorify God. How can I be like Christ in this? And and sometimes you know you know what that does? It it moves it it moves our view of the will of God from the decision itself to what. My heart. You see that? If the will of God is our sanctification, I become more like Christ, our our spiritual growth, our holiness, that, that moves the whole focus from, do I do this or do I do that, to where's my heart? What am I looking to? What am I trusting? What am I embracing? What am I telling myself? What are my motives? And you better believe, in the context of a difficult decision... God's going to be doing a lot of heart work in that isn't he if we're looking for it and and I and I think that again not, not that you I mean you have to make decisions what house do I buy and what job do I take and all of that but but before that the prerequisite to that we might say is sanctification or holiness and and interestingly as i mentioned this is paul's theme in uh, in most of the letters here uh, what's the first thing he talks about I know it's church, but you can say it. <laughs> Sexual purity. Sexual purity. Um, so let's look at that. And again, you know, as a family, we, we have to be able to talk about subjects like this. And we're going to talk about them the way the scripture talks about them. We're going to talk about them uh, wisely. We're going to talk about them using biblical language. But we've, we, we've got to be able to talk about things that are real battles. There are, there are Christian men and women Dying right now on the inside out because of sexual immorality in their heart or in their life, and one of the one of the dangers one of the, you guys know this um, and we 've talked about you know cancer in our church family here one, one of the dangers of sexual sin is it 's like cancer, it can be there and growing and metastasizing and getting worse, and no one knows. No one knows, and so part of, part of um, I think the, the wisdom of what God is showing us here is that we have to be able to not just talk about it but to be able to deal with it in godly ways and not let it grow to the point that um, that things are really out of control so let me let me just walk you through this passage here. I think there are some really good strategies and some really good principles here as we think about how we battle sexual sin, okay? So specifically, we want to look at, okay, this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? We're encouraging one another to walk in a manner that pleases God. We're going to rely on Jesus. What's the first area of life that God would want me to pursue sanctification in, at least based on these passages, I'll say it like this. We need to specifically pursue self-control over passions and abstinence from sexual sin. So self-control over passions and abstinence from sexual sin. Let me show you how I get those two main things there. Okay, look at verse 3. He says, um, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And and you guys know that that word translated sexual immorality uh, in your Bible there. That is a word uh, in the Greek language that references any and all sexual sin, and it's it's general by nature. Uh, you know, in the context Paul's writing to Thessalonians, uh, the Thessalonians live in the Greco-Roman Empire, and and there was all sorts of sexual perversion in that culture, not just associated with the society, but but the pagan religious system of the day. I mean, they, they've got a whole religious system that involves sexual perversion of many kinds. And so Paul's writing into this community saying, okay, brand new Christian, God's will for you is sanctification. Let, let me give you the first thing to focus on. The first thing to focus on. Do you, Just Just a footnote, I don't have any doubt that this is part of the reason why the Thessalonians were persecuted. They're upsetting the whole cultural norm. They're saying, no, I can't go to that temple and do that anymore. I can't be involved with this crowd anymore. I can't go along with this form of entertainment anymore. That I'm a Christian, and God calls me to personal holiness. And that's true today, isn't it? To walk in a way that's pure and holy. Do you know how much... Enter- Just think about this for a minute. How much entertainment do you have to say no to if you're going to obey this verse? All <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, and that's out there. That's not even getting into our own hearts that are fallen and prone to temptation and prone to those things. It's countercultural. Um, so he says, abstain from all forms of sexual sin. And again, the, the, the language is general but comprehensive. It, it's any sexual activity that doesn't happen in the context of a committed relationship in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. You've got to say that today, right? It's anything outside of that. Inside of those bounds, it glorifies God. Outside of those bounds, it demeans his name. And so we, we just have to and, and you know Paul says it in Thessalonians. But Paul says it stronger he says it in Ephesians even stronger. Chapter five, what does he say? Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. We shouldn't even have the aroma. We shouldn't even have the um, association. And, and that, that, that's challenging. That, that's really, really hard, isn't it? Because it's all around us and it's inside of us as those who are still working out our sanctification. But we start with this God calls us to full and complete abstinence from any and all sexual sin. We have to start with setting the bar there because the culture... And you guys, you guys that have been believers for a while, have you seen how the culture has just normalized so much? Do, do, okay, and I'll ask you, and I'm not going to think that you're old if you answer this, okay? Do you remember not too long ago when you saw a movie that portrayed adultery... And it was like, oh, that's a horrible thing. Right? Now it's what? You're, you're surprised when it doesn't happen. And, and let's not even get into homosexual relationships and transgender issues and, and horrible things. And what has that done? It, it, it's, our hearts don't react as strongly in the negative to that as past generations of Christians talk to me, is that true? And what is that doing? The, the more perverse it is, we may say, "Oh, that, 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 that's really, really bad." But then we, we become a little more accepting of what is still sexual sin, even though it's of a milder form, so to speak. And so that—that's why the bar's here. It's—it's it's above reproach. It's not even a hint. It's total and complete abstinence. And again, we need to pray for each other. We need to help each other. We need to be not shocked when someone says, hey, man, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling. You know, we, we, we ought to start with the premise that this is a struggle for everybody in our church. That's the premise we should start with. And then the question is, what are we doing to help one another in that? Notice number two, develop self-control over your body for the purpose of holiness and honor. Develop self-control over your body for the purpose of, of uh Holiness and honor. Verse four, he says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. See, see, that's that's the real key here, because the fruit of the Spirit, right? What, what God is producing through the Holy Spirit inside of us is what: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um. Now you may have a little footnote in your Bible. That there's a there's an interpretive issue here about you know what does vessel refer to? Does it refer to a person's body? Or there there are some interpreters that think it refers to a spouse, and uh, and that would get into really how you're treating your spouse in the context of marriage. And um, my understanding is that this is talking about self-control over one's own body, even though. Uh there's some disagreement on that. But but look look back with me. other. Each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. See see the purpose of self-control is not to just have self-control. The purpose of self-control is for what? Holiness. Christ-likeness. Remember what Paul says? Bodily discipline is of some profit. Right? If you're at the gym five hours a day, well, praise the Lord, you have that time. That's awesome. But godliness is profitable for all things. So, it's not just the presence of self-control, it's the presence of self-control for the purpose of godliness. And, uh, and that, that's the standard here. We want to develop self-control over body. And, and this is interesting. Look, look at the, the third thing here. Uh, turn away from indulgence in fallen desires, which are characteristic of unbelievers. Verse 5, he says, um, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's interesting. Um, when, when we do counseling for people struggling with sexual sin, one of the things I always try to do, and I, and I think this is, this is biblical, um, if somebody is indulging in one area of their life, say an area of sexual sin, chances are that's not the only area of life they're indulging in. So... Develop, in fact, this is a strategy. Part of how you develop self-control in one area of your life is you develop self-control in all your areas of life. So it may be, you know, you're working with this guy and he's struggling with sexual sin and he's indulging in things he shouldn't do. and um, But you look at his finances. He's indulging in spending money he doesn't have. You look at his eating habits. He's indulging in eating things he shouldn't eat. He's indulging in terms of laziness. He's not exercising like he ought to exercise. So you start looking, and it's like, you know, if I if I'm indulging over here and indulging over here and indulging over here and indulging what's that doing? It's training my heart to indulge any time I feel desire. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's the control, it's the self-control that when that desire rises up. There's a there's a faculty there's a system that happens that says wait a minute is that going to please God go back to verse one is that going to honor Him is that going to promote my sanctification and and that's part of how you battle this is you're developing self control over that desire it it is not (laughs) it is not good to get in the habit of just indulging whatever you feel like doing even listen even if it's a godly desire. Because you still want to have that moment where you go, is this godly or is this ungodly? You've got to have that, that self-control that checks before you do whatever. And um so he says, turn away from, from that indulgence, right? That, that fallen, my Bible says lustful passion. Th- those are, uh, these strong ruling desires, which are characteristic. It's interesting. He says, um, by the way, uh, Who lives like that? Who lives like that? People that need Jesus. And brothers and sisters, part of the call here is to live holy, to live sanctified, to live like our faith is real. And to not live like everybody else lives. Um, When we fall into this sort of sin, we're living like our faith in Jesus isn't real. And you know what? We all do that. We all. It's not me. It's not just you. It's, I think everybody struggles with that. And we got to remember, you know, this is not what we were called to. And it's so easy. Our fallen desires, a fallen culture, it's so easy to get caught up in that. Let's not live like unbelievers. Let's live like our Savior is as glorious and as valuable as he really is. Look at this. Remember, sexual sin always affects other people. Verse 6, it says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. I think what he's just getting at there is simply that if I engage in sexual sin with another person's wife, I'm defrauding my brother, right? Sexual sin always affects other people, and I could give you counseling story after counseling story after counseling story of how that's true. Remember also, verse 6, that God is the avenger of sin. The Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you and solemnly warned you. That's a sobering warning, isn't it? Remember Remember what Solomon told his boys when he was talking to them about sexual sin? Remember Solomon gets his boys together. He says, hey son, you see out the window there? See that guy hanging around that area? Yeah, dad. You know why he's there? Why is that, Dad? He's waiting for the prostitute. And then in chapter 7, he he lays that out, and, and, and suddenly that young man goes, follows her. Remember what Solomon tells his boys? He does not know that it will cost him his life. He doesn't see it coming. He doesn't see the danger. Back up a couple chapters, chapter five. Same thing, Solomon talking to his boys. For the ways of the man, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Remember the Lord in this. And remember he's the avenger uh, of sin. We come back, verse seven. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. He's not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Again, this comes back to verse one, right? What is the will of God? What, what is your why is what is walking to please God looks like? What is the purpose that a Christian should strive after? It is a call for personal sanctification, not the purpose of impurity. Um, and you know, the Bible calls the church what? The body of Christ. And that's part of the picture here, right? As united to Jesus as his body, we ought to live holy as he is holy. We ought to live sanctified. And that, that's so, right? We want to live for fun and we want to be like the world. We want to be entertainment. We want to pursue this and pursue that. We've we got to just dial it all back and say, God called us. What does what is, First what is Corinthians, what, what Corinthians say, chapter 6? Uh, you and I were bought with a... Therefore, we glorify God in our body. Okay, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, so we pursue a calling for personal holiness. Finally, and again, it ends on a sobering note. Verse eight: He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. This goes back, right? It's the, it's Jesus' authority that's bringing this command, not Paul ultimately, not not Timothy. It's it's Jesus' command. So to reject these calls to turn away from sexual sin, to abstain from sexual sin entirely, to not even have a hint of it, and to pursue holiness. If we reject that, what does that amount to? We're rejecting God himself. Um, I, I call these verses with teeth. You know what I mean? I mean, this is serious stuff. And, and we we have to sober up, and I'm preaching to myself as much as you guys, that, that we need to sober up in this perverse culture to say, this is this is a radical call to live consistent with the Savior that, that bought us and saved us and called us to Himself. And, and notice this, we're, we're rejecting God, and I, I love this little thing on the end here, and, and God who gives His Holy Spirit to us. Why is He called the... Holy Spirit. Because his job is to make you and me holy. That's what he's doing. He's producing that fruit inside of us and he's working to do that. Paul says to the Ephesians, you can grieve the Holy Spirit by rejecting this sort of thing. So let's ask God to give us grace as we all need to walk in holiness and to live consistent with our Savior and to pray that God might use our example in a perverse culture. How are we going to bring the light of help and hope to an ungodly perverse culture when we're no different? And to some degree, how we live here is a, an authenticating work that our Jesus can really change lives and help people that are struggling with this sort of thing. So let's, let's work on this with His grace and help. Father, thank You uh, for these sobering words, and we all need them. We, we, we see impurity in our hearts. We see temptation all around us. We, we see struggle. And we need Your grace. Uh, thank You that You do give us Your Holy Spirit and that Jesus did die and rise again, and we have full sufficiency in him to put to death the deeds of the flesh father make us make us holy make us more like Jesus and might this be the desire of our heart every day that more than our to-do list more than a decision we have to make that we would long to be like Christ and we would we would use gospel enabled grace to motivate us to pursue that every day for your honor and for your glory we pray in Jesus name amen